You know, this week I had an experience where we were, um, I pulled together a group of pastors in the area, about 10, 12 pastors that are, that are really advancing in their, in their ministry and leadership. And we brought in a guest to kind of uh, talk some leadership things to them. And they, they, he asked a question that I really didn't like. Uh, he asked a question, he said to rank between one and 10, where we stood on some things. Don't you love those kind of things? Especially when they don't give you the scale, like is one good or is 10 good? I'm not sure. But he started out with, he says, how lonely are you? And then you just felt that, just like this moment I said that, you felt that, hmm, <laughs> do I want to answer that or not? And then it was like, how frustrated are you? And then it's like, everybody's just scribbling down real fast. You know, that was an easy one. But then he asked, where's your hope on a scale of one to 10? You know, we, we talk at Hope Church, obviously we use the word a lot. I, I, we name the church hope primarily because I believe everybody needs hope in Jesus Christ. And that's where we find hope, isn't it? We, we look everywhere else on this earth, we find our hope in him. It, it's our relationship to God through Jesus Christ and our relationship to his word. That all his promises, come on somebody, are yes and amen through Jesus Christ. They're for us. And today we're going to look at some of those promises that really build hope in an area that, that you even sp uh, specifically said in a little survey we did was an area where maybe there's a little bit of lacking of hope. So this morning I invite you into this series called Ray, where we've been talking about what it means to re-engage our faith, our connection, our hope to the biblical understanding of Christianity through Jesus Christ so that our testimony would line up with our identity. In this world, how many know we need Christians being Christians, somebody? We need Christians being Christians, and not, not Christians in a cultural sense, Christians in a biblical sense. Because when we speak of that, we've got to take out culture. We've got to take out uh, political leanings. We've got to take out family traditions. We have to say, what does the Bible say about Jesus? How did he live? What did he say? What did he do? And what did he invite us into? So today I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 6. And today we're going to look at another miracle of Jesus. We've been looking at various miracles, various teachings, healings, those type of things. But today we're going to look at a different type of miracle. It's, uh, it's something we haven't really looked into yet. And we're going to look into a miracle that we would classify as a miracle of provision. A miracle of provision. So far, as we've been walking through the book of Mark, the miracles we've been looking at are, have really been what I would call miracles of deliverance, where, where we see healing, or we see demons cast out, or, or we see uh, people being restored to life. And yet, this miracle we're going to look at today is one of only two miracles that are recorded in all four of the Gospels, those first four books of the New Testament, those, those accounts of the life of Jesus. You'll find, this, you'll find this story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet we recognize there's a reason for that because every one of the Gospels had a different audience. Maybe you're not aware of how they were done, but they're not autobiographies. They're not, they're not just step by step the same. They are, they're, the, they're the testimony and the life of Jesus through the lens of four different individuals and were written for four different audiences. That's why sometimes you find little things out of order and you don't need to get hung up on that. It's, it's as they're relaying their experience of following Jesus. And Mark's gospel uh, was written by Peter. So we're seeing it through the eyes of, of Peter. But yet in all four of these gospels, they were pointing toward the most important miracle of all. They were all pointing to the end of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection on the third day, what we just celebrated at Easter. And praise God, without the resurrection, the Bible says we really are without hope. In fact, the Bible says we're actually foolish without the resurrection. But also every gospel spoke about this story, and it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's a unique miracle. 
It really is. It's unique in the first sense in the fact that it was a miracle provision. Like I said, it was a miracle that, that really brought us into this place. In fact, if you remember, the very first miracle of Jesus' ministry was a miracle provision. It was at the wedding in Cana, right? They, they'd, they'd run out of wine. There we go. That's how we started out, the miracle working of Jesus. And the, and the, the host was uh, chagrined, to say the least, and uh, didn't know what to do. And Mary kind of pokes Jesus and puts him into the play, I think really before he even wanted to be, and said, do something. And he said, hey, put some water in those barrels. And uh, through his word spoken, it became the best wine they'd ever known. And, and, you know, the thing about a miracle provision was, if he hadn't done that, how many know the wedding probably would have been a little less joyful for the people that were there in their culture, right? But nobody would have died. Uh, they'd have gone home and said, man, I can't believe the guy ran out of wine. That would have been all there was. But yet it, it, it did something for them. It did something for their lives. And yet we look at the miracles of provision and we say, you know what? There are times where we think we're going to die unless God provides. And yet he's promised provision in every aspect of our lives. Maybe sometimes it gets to the point where we feel like we need deliverance in that area, but really it's a matter of providing that which we need. Here's the second reason it was kind of unique was this miracle was not done for the audience, for the crowd. This miracle was actually done for the disciples, for the apostles, for the 12, those that followed him from the very beginning, they left everything and followed Jesus. And sometimes we have to recognize that. When God moves and does something, it's not always for everybody, but yet there's lessons for everybody, and that's what we're going to see in this miracle today. Last week, we looked at him sending out the 12. He said, y'all have heard enough. I want you to pair up. I want you to go into the cities and towns, preach the gospel, heal the sick, deliver the bound, and, and preach the kingdom of God in repentance. We saw that. And because of their ministry now, the crowds are growing even bigger. As I shared at Easter, there's always a crowd. There's always a crowd, but Jesus didn't come for the crowds. He, he, in fact, we saw that those that were ministered and touched by his ministry were those that stepped out of the crowd, those that said, I am all in, I surrender. But because of his ministry, man, he was drawing these crowds. They were, they were now supersized, and, and we, we come to the story, and Jesus was going to give a break to the disciples. He was going to say, hey, let's take a little time off. They, they'd done a lot of ministry. They were tired. How many know that ministry can make you tired sometimes, right? But not only that, they were carrying a big emotional weight. We didn't really spend time in it, but they, they'd gotten the news that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the forerunner of Jesus, the one that had gone before him, not only had lost his life, but he was beheaded by, by King Herod. And now, now this news has come and they're feeling the weight of that. And we pick up the story in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, verse 30, where Jesus said to them, as the apostles returned, he told them what they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. Let's rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Think about that. They were so busy ministering to others, they couldn't even stop and take a break. And they went away in, a, in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. They ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. I mean, picture that. Here's Jesus. Guys, get in the boat. We're going to a desolate place, little R&R. &R. It's going to be great. We'll, we'll sit around the campfire. We'll catch up. The people hear about it. They run around the lake so much so that when they get there, the crowd beat them to the other side, and now they're waiting on them to minister once again. So when he went on shore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. 
send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, we would never have that problem today because when we have big gatherings, Chick-fil-A is always there, right? But, uh, but they had no options. They were in a desolate place. There's no way to feed these people. It's getting late. The disciples are saying, Jesus, just send them away. And Jesus said, no, I got a better plan. And he answered them, verse 37, you give them something to eat. What? You give them something to eat. And, he, and, and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That was the equivalent, most scholars believe, between a half to one year's wages. Jesus, what a waste. You want us, even, even if we had that much, Lord, do you really want us to spend that so each one can get a little bit of bread before we send them home? Verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups of, on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of, by 100s and by 50s. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. I want you to really hone in on that for a second. In one of the versions, uh, I believe NIV, it says they give thanks. He gave thanks for what they have. And he broke the loaves, which is going to be important, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were what? Help me out. What does it say? They were satisfied. They didn't just get a crumb. They didn't just get a little nibble. They were satisfied by the meal Jesus provided. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now, is the way they counted in those days, they counted the men, the head of the household, right? But the estimates were there were probably somewhere between eight and 15,000 people that had gathered that day to experience this miracle. Now, can you imagine the position that Jesus put these disciples in? Go feed them. Do something. It'd be like the it'd be like the guys in the in the audio booth back there. You know, maybe the sermon's running long, it's getting late, and and they send me a little text like, "Hey, Mike, uh, you're kind of going long today. These people look hungry." And I'm like, "Feed them, just feed them." And they're like, "We got nothing." Well, go see what you got. And they would bring up these, these little bits they were able to collect. And Jesus said, I'm going to do something with that. I mean, it, it was outrageous. One year's wages just to give them a little biscuit, just to give them a little bit of fish. It made no sense. You know, but Jesus had a plan. He said, I want them to sit down in, in groups of 50 and hundreds. Literally, there would be somewhere between 50 and 150 groups if they were going to do this. But yet we experienced the miracle through this word. Now, Here's the challenge this morning. Before I get into the application we bring into our lives, if you've been in church very long at all, even raised around a family that understood the Bible, this is one of those stories we all know, right? It's one of those stories like, yep, he fed the 5,000. And if we're not careful, especially in the 9 o'clock service, we can kind of like tune out, like, oh, we know this and we got it down. But I want you to tell you this. I believe the reason it was in all four of the Gospels Yes, it was for the disciples, but Jesus knew it would be for centuries, for generations, for us to read and to look at it through our lens and understand that we serve a God who is absolutely the God of provision, the God who's able to provide for all our needs. So there's some incredible lessons I want us to see today in this area, the miracle of God's provision and how it works in our lives. When we asked you before Easter, we took a survey and we said, what's your greatest storm? I, I was actually floored. I, I was ready to see healing relationships. I was really to see things that are that are more in that emotion, right? By far, the number one storm that was mentioned in hope was finance. 
by far, not even close, not even, not even near within the percentage points. And, and we can look at that and say, well, you know, it's a strange economy and we're coming out of COVID and things are disrupted and we, we really don't know what's going on. Can I tell you, my God is not limited by our economy. My God is not limited by, by our circumstances. My God is not limited in his promises to us by our situation or circumstances today. Those that weren't here, which is all of you except maybe one of you, we began Hope Church on the very day the Great Recession started in our nation. The very day 15,000 Wachovia people disappeared from Wachovia became something else. Can I tell you, our God is a providing God. But we have to know that and we have to stand in that. Otherwise, that storm leads to fear, which leads to doubt, which leads to disobedience. And now we lead to frustration because now we're not even walking within the very promises of God. So how do we come into this? How do we understand the provision of our God? Because I believe this, his word is clear. To those who seek him, to those who follow him, to those who surrender him, he said, I will supply your need. Not only your need, but your desires and your wants. Those things that make us who we are as his creation. But it's got to begin with an understanding of this. And we've got four, four thoughts today I want to just pour into you and allow this to get into our lives. And the first is this. If we're going to see God provide in our lives, the first thing is we must learn to seek the provider and not the provision. Seek the provider and not the provision. Look, guys, it is God's nature to provide. You know, when the Bible describes God, it says God is love, right? We see that in the New Testament. But yet all throughout the Bible, he was giving character qualities out. And as he was doing this, there were different names assigned to them. And one of them was the name Jehovah Jireh. If you remember, this, Jehovah the Lord Jireh will provide. It is, a, it is a promise of God's character. He brings the rain on the just and the unjust, right? We have general provision for all of God's creation, but yet the Bible says there is a unique abundance and a unique provision to those who put him first, those who seek him above all else. James 1, 16 and 17 says it this way, "'Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers.'" Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do not be deceived. Whenever you see that, that little phrase in the Bible, it means a lot of people are deceived in that area. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. You see it again and again, but he says, my beloved brothers, who is that? That's those who are seeking him, those who are pursuing him, those who have surrendered to their lives to him. Who, who, who received the blessing of this provision and this miracle? It was the disciples and it was the crowd. It was the disciples, these 12 men who'd given up everything. They'd left their nets. They'd left their businesses. They'd left the tax booth. And they said, we're all in. We're, we're, you have the words of life. We're going after you. But also the crowd. The crowd was genuinely seeking Jesus. They, they'd come, they'd run from these cities to get out around the lake because they'd heard this teacher, this anointed one, this healer was there and they knew he could change their lives. Church, can I tell you, we should never grow weary in seeking our Lord. We should never grow tired of seeking our God. It's not enough to say, oh, I know him. Oh, how limiting that is for you to say. I know him. My God is dynamic. My God is real. I was telling Denise the other day, we've been, we've been doing pastoral ministry, 32 years preaching the gospel, studying God's word. I said, baby, I think I'm just now starting to understand some things about God because he just reveals more and more about who he is the more we seek him. 
But we got to learn to seek him before we seek the provision. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, very famous passage, uh, verse, beginning of verse 31, it'll be on the screen. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. I hope you don't write in your Bible, yeah, right. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. We are an anxious generation, church. We, we, need, we need to put that in God's hands, all right? Let that not be found. This is back to the testimony and identity. An anxious Christian is an oxymoron. One that lives constant in anxiety as a Christian is an oxymoron. It should not be. A, a fearful Christian should not be. Why? Because if our focus is on him, his promises, his word, his faithfulness, there is a peace he has promised us. And we walk, walk in that peace when he is our priority. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Seek first and then all these things. Seek first and then all these things. Look, there's nothing wrong with seeking a better job. Can we say yes to that? There's nothing wrong with seeking a better situation. There's nothing wrong with looking for a place to live or a better place to live. But the distinction he's making that, if that is your first priority above seeking God, then you're missing the boats. You're missing the mark. You're missing the thought. Look, it's natural. It's natural. We, we have that natural inclination. All of us, we've got to provide. We've got to take care. That's what we do, Right? But the moment we decide to seek provision and to make that more important than seeking the Lord, truly, according to his word, we're on our own. <laughs> and instead of having his authority and his covering and his blessing, we are on our own to basically get what we can get and do what we can do. And I learned a long time ago, I can't do a whole lot. Oh, listen, most can take care of themselves, but we'll never experience the fullness and the blessing and the abundance of God until we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You know, we, we so often seek the provision thinking, and maybe even praying this, God, after I get things the way I, I, I think they should be, then I'll put you first. <clears throat> God, when I, when, I, when I get out of debt, God, then I'll, then I'll put your kingdom first. Oh, I understand by the age of our, our, our church. Lord, when I get these student loans paid off, then I'll put you first in my life. Can I ask you a question this morning? Would you not rather have God working to help you pay off those loans and it all being on you? 15 years, 15 years since my first child went to college, $90,000 of college debt parent loans have been paid off through God's blessing and God's faithfulness. You can't wait till everything comes in a line to put God first. You got to start where you are. And you got to recognize he wants to be engaged in that because he's made promises to us. Oh, and that's in a single-income family. It's never been six figures in my life. God is able to do above and beyond what we can ask or imagine, but he's got to be first. Maybe, maybe a little later in life, God, when I get my 401k the way I want it to be, when I buy my first house, then, then I'll seek to further the kingdom with my finances. We could have millions of excuses. But what we're basically telling God is this, God, I'm going to get to you, but I have other things in my life that need to be taken care of first. You're not my first priority. And we wonder why fear and finances may be our greatest storm. 
You see, I believe that many today uh, follow Christ with their hearts. Lord, I, I surrender. You are my Savior. You're my Lord. But yet are living in the storm of financial insecurity, a storm of their own making, because they don't lean into and obey and follow God's teaching and God's word in their lives. And then they get frustrated. And then they get angry. Well, why is God not coming through? Why is God not providing? Because you have not put him first. Good preaching, Pastor Mike. Amen. Wake up, 9 o'clock. Come on. You see, guys, we have so many things that can be first, don't we? Oh, we have so many things. Oh, God, I, gotta, I have to take care of my family first. God says I have a way to do that, but it's by seeking me first. Then watch me provide for your family. God, i got to take care of my retirement first. There's a way to do that. Seek me first and watch me take care of that for you. How about my education? We can go on and on and on, but the reality is whenever we don't put him first, what we're saying is, God, I'll take care of myself. And I don't want to be in that place. So the first thing is we got to seek the provider, not the provision. Here's the second key we see in the story today. We've got to give God what we have. When, when we seek God and he provides, when we seek God and he takes care of us, then we have to turn around and we have to give him what we have. Matthew 6, 38 says this way. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. I'm going to ask Denise to bring me something here just to help us with a little understanding in a real practical way this morning. Uh, I brought this in today, and the band thought I was providing breakfast. No, sorry. Uh, prop. Go and see what you have. 15,000 people, right? They, they go out. Hey, anybody got any food? Got anybody any food? And what does the Bible say in John's gospel? They found a little boy that his mama had packed a lunch for him. And in that lunch, it said there were some things that were good for him. That just messed up second service. I just tore the box. There we go. And, and he said they had five, five little loaves. We're not talking loaves. We're talking little biscuits that, that his mama provided for him. And, and they said, oh, great. We got five biscuits. All right. We'll put those out. We've got, we, we're starting something now. If we can only get about 15,000 more of these, we'll be okay. And then he said, not only that, we have two fish. Well, I could not bring fish in here. So two beef jerkies. How's that? And, um, and, he, and he said, okay. Great. Now, let me ask you a question. We're a pretty smart bunch here. 15,000 people out on the hillside. Is this enough to feed them? <laughs> Not even close. And remember this. The Bible said they were satisfied. They, they, were, they were full. Oh, I can't take any more. No more beef jerky, please. Thank you. I'm good. Thank you, Peter. Keep moving on. Is it enough? No. But here's a truth you need to get into your heart. I'll be on your screen. In God's hands, little is always abundance. But in our hands, little is always just little. In God's hands, little is always abundance. But in our hands, little is just little. I just can picture Peter and James and John. There's like, no way. That's just not happening. There's no way that's going to provide. It cannot take place. This is all we have, Jesus. And Jesus said, then give it to me. You see, when it comes to seeking God's provision... You'll always experience him asking you to give him your all, no matter what that is, even when it seems to not be enough. And that's where I think really the storm comes. But God, it's not even enough to begin with. And you're asking me to be generous and to give it all to you and trust you with this? He says, yes. If you seek the provider first and, and are willing to do so, then watch what he does. I mean, this little biscuit and jerky, I mean, come on. Here, here's, a, here's a question for us. If this is what you have and Jesus asked for it, then how much belongs to him? All of it, right? See, that's a concept we have a hard time with. 
You know, we're like, oh, pastor, now, you know, I, I believe the Bible says that, you know, we are to tithe, so, so I'll give him, a, you know, here, here's 10%, there you go, I, I've, met my, I've met my responsibility. But God says, well, minimal requirements, yeah, but you don't understand, I own it all. Because only until I have it all can I turn it around and really bless you, give you the abundance that I want to. See, we have to understand what God has in our lives, everything we have, every gift from, comes from above. We read earlier, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he says this word that we have a hard time with. He said, literally on this earth, we then become stewards of what he blesses us with and not owners. Stewards and not owners. Basically, we manage what God has blessed us with instead of owning it and using it only the way we want to. And it sounds really good, doesn't it? But yet we have a hard time working that out in real life. So I'm going to help you with some real practical understanding of that in just a moment. But I want to give you another very important concept here. And, and again, I, I really believe this. I've been praying all week because I understand Jesus. I, un, I do understand Jesus. Remember when they were in the middle of the storm and they were freaking out, we're going to die. And he's back there in the boat taking a nap. And he gets up and he says, oh, you have little faith. And I share with you that Sunday, it sounds almost like he was fussing at them. But I believe this, I believe the disappointment was is they yet had not understood how great he was. And as a, as a, as a pastor, I would tell you, it is frustrating me sometimes to go, you don't understand. You don't experience God until you step in. You don't experience his promises until you act on them. They don't happen and then you go, oh, that makes sense. Now I'll trust him. No, you've got to step in. And in the same way, he says this, if I don't give it to God when it's not enough, he can never trust me with more than enough. If I don't give it to God when it's not enough, he can never trust me when it is more than enough. I thank God for my precious mama who's been with the Lord many, many years now, but that, that the wonderful woman who played the organ or the piano, depending on who showed up on the Sunday. And, and yet when I got my first little job and I, I got to make some money, $2 a stall, muck and stalls for my dad, I was rich. And I remember that thing. She goes, okay, here, here's your first pay. Now here you go. What, what's God's? All of it, mom. That's right. That's right. Now here, minimal. We're going we're to tithe off this. I'm so thankful. Do you know why? It may have been a little hard at first, but can I tell you, when all of a sudden the check has a lot more zeros on it, it gets a lot harder. When God can't trust you with a little, he can't trust you with more than enough. He said it this way in Luke's gospel. Luke 16, 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. I don't know what it says in your version of the Bible as you're reading this morning, but that word very little, it, it literally means the tiniest portion of. It, it's the smallest amount. It says whoever is, one who's faithful with the tiniest amount is also faithful in much, and one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And, and we push back and say, Jesus, I don't, I don't like the tone of your language there. You're calling us dishonest. But I believe he's hearkening back to what the prophet Malachi said when he talked about the whole thought of the bringing the tithe into the storehouse. And God said, hey, guys, you're robbing me. And it's not we're robbing like we're taking something from God now he can't provide. What he's saying is I'm robbing, we're robbing God of the ability and the promise and the joy of providing for his children. And as a father, I get that. I, I get that. It's that joy that says, oh, I'm able to take care of them when they can't take care of themselves. Now, now mine are getting older. I'm like, y'all are paying for the internet. Y'all make more than I do. But that's a whole other story, right? But in the moment, we love to provide. We love to pour into them. But how do we get there? 
how do we give what we have over to God? So let's get real practical. If we're going to steward what God has given us, the first thing we have to learn is, is to learn how to share. I feel like we're back in the kindergarten class. Now, kids, we're going to share. <laughs> let's play nice. But we have to learn to share. And God gives us a kind of a, a layout of how and who we share with. He says, first of all, we, we share into the kingdom of God. We, we share into the, the ministry that expands the kingdom of God. That's where we see the kingdom agendas are met. It's that tithe that's offering, that, that sends missionaries, that builds churches, that, that sets up what we have, that, that enables us to minister the gospel in our context. But then secondly, he says, we minister to the needs of others around us. We recognize we are blessed. Can you say that this morning to yourself? I'm blessed. Right. We're blessed. There's abundance. There, there's something that God has done. In our life. It's more than enough for my provision. And understand, it's more than just our money. It's our possessions. It's our all. Remember, it's the beef jerky and, and, the, and the five biscuits. It's not just about money. It's our possessions. And I enjoy things. And it's not wrong to enjoy things. But I've learned to live in a way where, where sharing is a lot easier. And that's this. I don't want to own anything I can't share. I don't want to own anything I can't share. It'll rot my soul. <laughs> it, it, uh, it's too nice. I can't share that. That's too good. I can't, let, I can't invite you over. I can't even do it. I don't want to own anything I can't share with others. Why? Because God has created us to be generous. And I want to live in that promise of his abundance. But here's what we do. We seek to claim some things the Bible never promises in fact, there's a favorite verse in the New Testament. I mean, we put it on mugs, we put it on T-shirts, maybe you have it on your refrigerator. Philippians 4, you, you are, some of you know just by that context, you know what I'm talking about. Philippians 4, 19 says, my God. No, it doesn't say that. Is it on the screen? Philippians 4, 19. What's the first word? And. 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 Let, me, let me show you why that's important in a moment. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now look, great verse, amazing promise, absolute truth. Can we say yes to that? Absolute truth, but yet you have to understand the context around it. If you look back in the beginning of verse 15, this is Paul to the church at Philippi, and, and he said to them, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left uh, Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. But here's the key. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul was one that said, I've learned to be content. He says, I've had a lot, I've had nothing. I've learned to be content. My God takes care of me. He says, so it's not the gift that I'm excited about. He says, but that it increases to your credit. God sees it. God knows it. God understands your generosity. He said, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. That, that, that word and, it means because of, therefore, because of. We, we like to take it out. We say, well, God's promised me my needs. Yes, he has. When you are Philippian generous, when you're generous like the Philippians, when you recognize it's all God's, 
When you begin to see, you're seeking the provision, so you begin to share it, and the kingdom of God advances because of your generosity. So we have to recognize we start by sharing it and let God do his part. So we give it to God, and therefore he will meet our needs. Truly, guys, this is not a promise for everybody. I'll be so bold to say it's not a promise for all Christians. But they kind of settle in for a second. It's not even a promise for all Christians. There are a lot of people that are going to go to heaven. There are a lot of people that have named the name of Jesus. They've said, Lord, forgive me my sin, and I want you to be Lord of all, but they've never lived in the Lordship. And they've never trusted him in that area, and, and they've missed out on the abundant life that God has called them in that are partners within the kingdom of God. It's not even a promise for all Christians, and that's what makes so many people of God, churchgoers, frustrated with God. In fact, some would go so far to say they're angry at God. God, you, you just haven't done what you said. Maybe it's because you haven't done what you said. Maybe it's because you haven't trusted in what you said to do. You see, our God will supply, but it's got to come out of that us putting him first. Here, here's the second part of how we make him stewards, of, how we are stewards of everything. We need to give thanks for it even when it's not enough. Give thanks for it even when it's not enough. Remember, he says, what do you have, guys? What do you have? Go find out. Five biscuits, two beef jerkies. I asked you, is it enough? We all agreed, it's not enough. But yet Jesus did something so powerful in that moment. He said, he said a blessing. Now, most of us, we think that's kind of like what you do so you get to eat, right? God, we thank you for this food. Blessed are our bodies, amen, in the name of Jesus. And that's it. No, he gave thanks for it. I'm so grateful in the recording of this miracle that Jesus didn't pray this supernatural, miraculous, provisional type of prayer that is just beyond our way of thinking. No, he just gave thanks to his father. God, it's enough, even when it doesn't look like it's enough. God, it's enough, even when it doesn't make sense. God, it's enough, and I give you thanks. Listen, guys, our natural tendency is, <clears throat> when we don't have what we consider enough, our natural tendency is to complain. God, why don't I have what everybody else has? God, why does my job not pay what their pays, God? Why is it, God, at the end of the month, it feels like I don't have enough, God? We complain or we hoard and we get selfish. If our glass is half full, if we're not careful, we'll just complain all day long to God about the air instead of seeing the water that's been provided for us. But yet the Bible tells us, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we're to give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the, help me out, what does it say? No, a little louder than that. you got to trust it. What does it say? Will of God, right? Hey, Pastor Mike, can we have coffee? I'm really struggling to know what the will of God is in my life. Well, let's start there. How about? How about let's give thanks in every circumstance? Oh, we're not thanking God for every. God, I thank you that I, I, I thank you that I'm broke. God, I thank you that I lost my job. God, God, I thank you that I am in your hands. I trust in you, God. You are able because you are my provider. God, I trust you. That's our thanksgiving to our God. So we've got we to gotta share. We've got to learn to give thanks when it's not enough. And then this third part, and this is hard, we've got to learn let God break it. He gave thanks and he broke it. Now, now we see that and we have communion, right? We see it in, the, in the, the story of the Last Supper where he gave thanks for the bread. He broke it. It was symbolism of what was going to happen to his body. I believe in the same way, it was symbolism to them and to us now. And that is when we put something into God's hands, we have to trust how God is going to use it. 
because he doesn't always do it the way we think he ought to do it. Can we agree to that? He, he is, he, his ways are higher than ours, and he has a tendency to take what we give him and use it differently than we might expect. But it's in the brokenness that we find the miracle. Everybody wants a miracle, but you have to recognize you don't get a miracle unless you're in a mess. Miracles come out of the mess. They don't come out of all the perfect conditions. They come out of that understanding of saying, God, it's not enough. I give you thanks. You know what my need is. And Lord, do with it what you want. And he breaks it. And he goes the direction you don't expect. It's like the children of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. They were all the years of slavery. Now they're being set free. And he says, oh, on the way out, ask everybody for gold and silver. And basically they pillage Egypt. I mean, people are just like, go away, please. Get these plagues out of here. Here, take everything I've got. And they go into the desert and they're rich. I mean, they have got what they think is all they need only for God to lead them through the wilderness, through the desert, into a place right up against the Red Sea where now there's no hope of deliverance. And they're like, wait a second. God, you said you'd provide. I mean, goodness, we have gold, we have silver, but don't you know the Egyptians are bearing down on us? Don't you know they're going to kill us? And you've led us to a place we can do absolutely nothing. Thanks for the gold, God, but a weapon would have been better. But God's ways are not our ways. In fact, his ways are higher than our ways. When we were starting hope, we jumped into this wonderful adventure that God called us into. And we, we got into those early days and we had three kids at home, first one starting college. And, and I would look at what, what hope was able to do and I'd say, God, it's not enough. And, and we would pray like, God, you, you promised to provide all our need. And I'm just waiting for the check to show up, right? I'm like, all right, God, I'm going to open the mailbox. It's going to be there. God, I know that's how you're going to do it. It's going to be miraculous. We'll just celebrate it. God goes, no, you're uniquely talented and gifted in many areas. He lined up three part-time jobs for me that I worked for about seven years. Three part-time jobs were all part of my past experience. Can I tell you, God never wastes an experience. And he says, Mike, I'm going to put you out in the community. I'm teaching, I'm teaching biomedical conferences on leadership. I know nothing about biomedicine, but I know a lot about leadership. And I'm teaching about Jesus. And I got to speak into the community. I'm, I'm over here swinging a hammer, helping renovate things. I'm over keeping the books for an auto video company that's working for churches. And I'm like, God, this is not the way I saw it lining out. But I never lacked anything. Amen. Why? Because I gave thanks. God broke it. He went a different way than I thought he would. And then most importantly, if you're going to be a steward with what God has blessed you, do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. We've sought the provider. We give what we have to God. And now we're going to do what he says to do. It's on the screen. It's in your notes. The path of provision is always the path of obedience. The path of provision is always the path of obedience. If the disciples would have bristled and said, Jesus, we're, we're going to be humiliated. We're going to be embarrassed. I, I'm not, I'm not going to take this biscuit and go try to feed 15,000 people. Then we would not read about this miracle. But they did what he said. In the same way, church, if we really want to overcome that storm of finance or that storm of security, then we've got to recognize even if it may seem like things are getting worse, we've got to keep obeying God. Even if he takes it and breaks it, we've got to keep obeying God. If not, we, we, we basically pull the plug on the miracle. If not, we're like, God, I, I want to trust you, but I can't. I'm taking it all back. Well, now the miracle's gone. One of the earliest verses that I memorized as a believer, even as a child, was Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your paths straight. How many know there are times in life that life doesn't make sense? 
Let's go a step further. How many times there are, there are things that God asks you to do that don't make sense? Yeah, a lot. But yet, if I do what he says, I trust him with my heart. I don't lean to my own understanding. It doesn't mean we go through life mindless. It doesn't mean that he has not already given us ways to do things and understand how God wants us to do life together and he's, he's given us talent. Everything we have is from him. But there are times when we come to a place where what he wants us to do doesn't make sense. He says, there, that's where you've got to trust him. That's where you've got to lean in. It's like the new believer, you start trying to teach this concept and they're like, but it makes no sense to, to, to share uh, with the kingdom of God when I've got bills to pay and there's not enough. I say, and we got to say, but it's there the miracle happens. It's there that God intervenes and promises to provide for us. Look, when life doesn't make sense, lean not on understandings, trust and acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. So go back to the children of Israel, right? So they're, they're up against the Red Sea. We're going to die. Forget the gold. We don't need gold. We need weapons. But God had a bigger plan. But it would not happen if Moses didn't obey God. What did God tell Moses to do? Hold out your staff. Can you imagine how foolish that felt in the moment? I mean, the enemy of our lives is bearing down on us. God, you brought us out. Or it seems like we're about to die. There's this great body of water ahead of us that we can't do anything about. And all you want to do is hold out my staff. But until he held up the staff, the Red Sea didn't part. And when it parted, they walked across on dry ground. And not only did they get to the other side, get this, God destroyed their enemies because they did it God's way and not their way. Later, when they came into the promised land, they were about to cross the river Jordan. Joshua is the leader now. And, and the Lord said, tell the priests to wade out into the water. And I can imagine those priests going, great. <laughs> I don't want to be a priest today because the water is rushing. It's at flood stage. You can picture it in your minds. And, and yet, until they set foot in the water, the waters did not part for them to go to the other side. Church, in all our ways, acknowledge him. That means we do what he says. We do what he says. I had this conversation years ago among a group of believers, and they were talking about investing and retirements and all this. I said, you know what the greatest investment advice I ever got? They're like, what, what, what? They're going to write it down, you know, we're going to think Charles Schwab, whatever. I'm like, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. Then all these things are out of deal. The greatest secret I can tell you is do what God says. Obey him in the tithe and begin to become generous in the offering and see what God can do better than any financial advisor you're ever going to find who you'll pay a lot more to. They can't even do much for you in our economy today. Listen, he said, we got to recognize if we want to say we're believers, then we step into it. Because when I said that, they pushed back and said, oh, we don't believe that. I said, then I guess you don't believe the Bible, do you? I'm not always popular. I guess you don't believe the Bible. Oh, yeah, we do. We love Jesus. Well, no, you don't. Because you can't say you love Jesus and don't do what he does. says. It doesn't add up. That lordship is missing. If you want fire insurance, you got it. But the lordship is missing. So we got to do what he says. And finally today, if we're going to walk in his provision, I love this last little bit of the story. We got to save the leftovers. Save the leftovers. Mark 6.43 says they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. 12 baskets. How many apostles were there? <clears throat> you hadn't tuned out, have you? How many apostles were there? 12, including Judas, right? 12 baskets 
full of fish and full of bread left over. But get this. You know, if you kind of put yourself in the story, was Jesus like, well, I'm going to provide lunch for you tomorrow, guys, so pick it up on the way. That wasn't really the reason. Or not even an object lesson. There was a deeper lesson for them to understand. It was a lesson of faith. And all we're going to see next week in the next story in Mark's gospel, they're going to fail on this job. They're going to miss it because you read it in Mark 6, verse 50. It says, in the middle of a storm where they're terrified once again, for they all saw Jesus. He was walking on the water. It says they were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. Look at verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. I can just see them. They're freaking out. Wind and waves. I mean, it's just life's turning upside down again. But the whole time they're smelling the bread. <laughs> they're, they're, they're smelling the fish. They're, they're remembering this God who did this miraculous provision. 15,000 people fed with five loaves and, and two beef jerkies. And yet in the middle of the storm, they're like, I can't believe Church, listen, seek first the kingdom of God. We give it all to God, and then he will provide. Our security is not found in what we can do. Because if you haven't figured it out yet, what we can do can get taken away from us very easily. It can change like that. That career that you thought was going to take you to retirement can go away. Health issues, a lot of things can change. But our God does not change. And when we come after him and we seek first his kingdom and I don't understand him, then we come to that place where we recognize his faithfulness. Can I tell you, when, when I'm challenged to trust God, my, my, my encouragement is not my favorite scriptures. What, what builds my faith is not going back and quoting the Bible to myself. What helps me in those moments is I choose to remember God's faithfulness in my life. Oh, God, I remember when, God, this happened. God, I remember when we were up against this wall, and God, you made a way where there seemed to be no way. God, I remember when the fear was overwhelming, and we just stopped and said, why are we fearful? And we preached to our souls and said, oh, put your trust in God. And God, you you saw us through. Guys, there's a beauty in the rear mirror of our lives as believers sometimes. Because our God doesn't choose to be faithful once in your life. He's faithful always. Do we trust him? Do we trust him? I I don't know. I don't know what you feel. I don't know how you receive. I don't know what that speaks into your life, but I know this. God wants to do something amazing in us. But he does it when we step in. He does it when we trust him. There's a final little piece of this story. We're going to wrap it up. Mark doesn't really talk about the little boy. Those that have been here on Wednesday nights, we talk about the David story. I'm like, there's no heroes in the Bible. There's only one hero, it's God. But in this story, there was another hero. It's a little boy. I mean, when he, when he shows up and they, they come and they say, hey boy, you went to Bojangles. Your mama loves you. What you got? Well, it's my lunch. Here, give it to us. If he hadn't given it to them, there was nothing for God to multiply. In the same way, when God provides for us and then we generously obey his word and give, can I tell you, we become part of the provision for others. We become part of the provision for others. There's no greater 
joy as a pastor sometimes when a need comes up. And I go, we can do that. We can take care of that. This week, a friend of mine, a pastor in our area, in fact, their church is a daughter church of ours. Her daughter was killed in a car accident right out here, 45, Thursday morning. Today I'm going to be at the house and I'm going to say, look, we're going to help you at the funeral a little bit. We're going to do what we can. I love when we're able to look at needs and say, we've got that. Why? Because God's people have done what God has said to do. But can I tell you this morning, don't be the one that sits there and says, yeah, but that's not me. That may be your reality, but God wants to take you from fear and control to faith and release. Because when God does that, now you enter into his kingdom purpose and your faith becomes a blessing to others. We don't do this often at Hope. In fact, we, we kind of laugh whenever we have an on-ramp. You all know some of you, that one of the first questions I get asked is, Pastor, we've been going to churches a lot, but you never take an offering. Yeah, we do. Every Sunday. We just don't pass buckets. And the reason we don't pass buckets is 98% of those who give, give online. And it'd be kind of foolish, like, here's the bucket. Pass, 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 pass. And if you're sitting next to an elder at Hope and you're a guest, and you're like, those people never give. Well, they call themselves Christians. Come on. Oh, they give. They just give electronically. Over our history, we don't even take special offerings until it comes to buildings, things like that. But God put something in my heart today just to throw out ahead of you. Because some, someone today needs to learn to step into some generosity. And I'm going to throw this out as just a challenge to you. A few weeks ago, I had a young couple come to me, precious, serving, going after God. They said, Pastor, we're going on a missions trip. We're going to Honduras. We're going to go preach the gospel. Is it okay if we set up a little table and sell baked goods before service? And your pastor does, I do a lot, looked at him and said, no, you can't. What? Why would you need to get out there and beg by selling little cupcakes to raise money for you to go spread the gospel when God's people are right here who ought to be generous and provide all that we need. Because already when you give to Hope Church, 10% of it goes to missions. Automatically out the door. We gave 15% away last year. But there are times when I think we need to be challenged individually to say, if you're looking for a place to be generous, there it is. They need $3,000 to go. That's simple. I could write them the check today. Simple. Wouldn't even, wouldn't even, wouldn't even touch the budget at Hope. But God spoke to my heart this week as I prayed. He said, no, put that out here. Because he wants someone to learn this morning that what they have is his. Give thanks even when it seems like not enough. Do what he says. And if that's you, it's very simple. When you give, just mark down mission trip. Whether you do it online, whether you do it on a a card. But I believe God's going to meet their need. Do you believe that?